thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths we can glean from it. I pray that you will uh, deal with our own hearts on issues that we will discover in our study. In your name, amen. It's a little warm in here because an AC part has been ordered and it's not working. Last week, I think, well, the other week we froze, but no freezing today. Try to stay awake, okay? <laughs> Nobody go to sleep on me. So, uh, after a woman had buried her husband, she received $20,000 inheritance. They had left for her, and a friend said, well, what are you going to do with all that money? And she said, all that money? I had to pay so many thousands to the funeral, thousands to the church, and then I paid 10000 for a memorial stone. And she said, wow, that's a lot for a memorial stone. And she said, her friend said, how big was it? She said, three carats. <laughs> that's my kind of memorial stone. <clears throat> well, last week we saw that Israel made a peace treaty with the promise to not do any harm to the Gibeonites, even though they came to them in such a deceptive way. So you, as you know, it only took a couple of days for them to realize that the men had been deceitful. They were not from far away. They were in the neighborhood. Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 reminds us, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So Joshua, having made that vow, that covenant, that promise with them, was going to keep it at all costs. God makes it clear in his word that when you do make a vow, you are to keep it. Without seeking the Lord, as you recall, Israel made a promise to not harm the Gibeonites, and now they were bound to that promise. This would now play into their next battle plan as they're forced to protect the people that they ended up making a covenant with. So... That brings us to defending the Gibeonites. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made, a peace, uh, made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jeremoth, and to Jephiah, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon. That's pretty good, isn't it? All those names. Thank you, thank you. With all the crazy baby names going on, I don't know why they don't go to this passage and pick some out of here. Okay, well, anyways, but what he said is come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon for it has made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, also gathered together, went up, they and all their armies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. So as one person wrote, if you make an agreement with an enemy, you, will expect to end, you can expect to end up paying a price having to defend them in order to protect yourself. Well, one could appreciate the distress of the king of Jerusalem as he observed what had happened with the Gibeonites, and they were such a strategic location with a confederation of four towns around them. Gibeon would have guarded, guarded the eastern end of a very important road between Jerusalem and Ajalon to the west. So the king of Jerusalem was upset because he knew that Israel had already taken down Jericho and Ai to the east. Now the Gibeonites had a confederation with Israel, which was a town to, at the center to the west. 
So there was actually a rectangle of four key sites now all under Joshua and the army's control. He had cut a pass right through the center of Canaan, driving a wedge between the north and the south. The Canaanite armies wanted to take over the key city of Gibeon, so that uh, so they made an alliance with the king of Jerusalem, and all these armies camped before Gibeon to make sure they would tackle this city. So these kings formed their alliance. They were very enraged, really, with the Gibeonites for making peace with Joshua. So Gibeon found itself at peace with Israel, but suddenly at war with all of their former allies. So the five kings' southern confederacy was laying siege against Gibeon out of a great concern for their own safety. And that brings us to the battle in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azak and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel, they were on the descent from Beth Horon and the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azarak and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this confederation of kings and armies all thought that they were doing the right thing to join as one huge army to tackle Gibeon. But unknown to them, God was going to use all of these events to accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> Instead of Israel having to defeat these five city-states one at a time, Excuse me. Now God would help Joshua conquer them all at one time. So despite the fact that Joshua didn't seek the Lord's counsel before making that peace agreement with the Gibeonites, God was still going to use what he did and this situation to not only protect Gibeon, but to accelerate the conquest of the land of promise. I think it's a great Old Testament example of the New Testament verse of Romans 8.28 that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him, to those that are called according to his promise. So God took and worked this failure to pray and seek him, as we saw last week about making an alliance with this people. But now, in spite of that, God is going to use five armies all gathering to attack Gibeah as a source for them to uh, deal with their enemies. So Joshua acted quickly. As God assured him there was no need for him to be afraid, God would give these armies into his hand. So Joshua chose to believe God's promise, and he used great strategy as well as he called on the Lord in prayer. The Lord promised victory, but the victory would come as a result of a forced night uh, march all night of Israel's army in order to have a surprise attack. As believers, we have so many promises from the Lord for his provisions for us, but that doesn't mean that we sit back then and do nothing. We have to put on the armor of God as we are involved in a spiritual war, and we must exercise spiritual disciplines in our own lives as we fight temptations from the world we live in, from the enemy of our soul, and from our own flesh. There is no place for laziness when it comes to being a student of his word. 
and making time to be in prayer with him each day. Like Joshua, we must choose to believe the promises that God has given and then obey as we obey and act in obedience by faith. The evidence that Joshua believed God was seen in the fact that he ordered this all-night march for the surprise attack on the enemy. It was a 25-mile march from Gilgal to Gibeon, mostly uphill, so no doubt the soldiers arrived very weary and spent, and their need for help from the Lord was, was really great. Believing God's promise, Joshua led his army in the surprise attack against the Amorite armies of the south. Panic struck the enemy as they fled in confusion. Their attempt to escape was through a narrow pass down the valley of Agilon with Israel hot on their trail. God sent his help to assist these weary Jewish soldiers as he killed their enemy with these large hailstones that he threw down from heaven. Miraculously, these stones hit only the enemy soldiers. God himself was the great warrior in this particular battle. More soldiers died from the hail sent by God than by Israel's soldiers. So the source of Israel's victory is clearly God. When God spoke to Job, you remember at the end of that whole book when Job had so many questions for God, God said, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress for the day of war and battle? So it is God who sent the hailstorm. It's God who directed the large hail uh, falling from the sky, hitting directly the enemy soldiers. I couldn't help but think of another time in the future when God is going to go back to this same storehouse of hail as he pours out his judgment on earth in the great tribulation. It's in the series of bold judgments in Revelation, or the seventh of those judgments on the planet earth says, huge hailstones about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Well, God was judging Canaan, as we know, in using the army of Israel to do so, but there is judgment in the future for our planet as well. God has everything at his disposal, at his disposal to use in a time, in his time and for his purpose. And that brings us to the miracle of answered prayer. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon, in the valley of Agilon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. There was no day day like this uh, before or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel returned to the camp at Gilgal. So what a miracle of answered prayer here. What happened that day is so amazing because God listened to the prayer of Joshua to give him more daylight hours. How incredible God listens to the voice of a man or a woman when they come to him in prayer. How amazing that God, the God of the universe who's seated on high actually stoops down and bends his ear to hear what frail man has to say. Psalm 91.15, God says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. So what a mighty God that we have to have the privilege of praying to. Joshua made this request so the, bat- so the battle that they were in could be completed and done. The sun and the moon stopped their normal course of action as God brought about this miracle. I read many different thoughts as to how God did the miracle, but the point is, he did it. 
without causing the entire planet to fail. In answer to Joshua's prayer, God caused the rotation of the earth to slow down so that it likely made one full rotation in 48 hours instead of 24. The other miracle that happened is that God stopped any cataclysmic effects that could have naturally would have happened, such as tidal waves or objects flying around. So the Lord is God, and there is nothing too difficult for him. Everything he has made is in his power to do with as he pleases. It appears that God stopped the sun and the moon, or at least slowed the rotation of the planets so that they went sun and moon set very, very slowly. So God actually stopped the normal course of events, controlled a gradual descent, and causing the light to be refracted for a much longer period of time. If we believe Jesus walked on the water, calmed the storm, made uh, water into wine, rose from the dead, there's really, really no reason to doubt what happened here in our study today. We read in James that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three years and six months. God says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I don't know if we really believe that. I really think we'd have more priority in our day to be praying if we really believe that to be so. Our study today reminds us of the urgency of prayer and the importance of prayer, as well as the power that God has at his disposal to answer our prayers. So I think our takeaway from this part of our study today should be a reminder of the importance of prayer as well as the ability that God has to do, as the New Testament says, exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. While the battle was completed in verses 16 through 27, now the five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told Joshua, who said, well, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men to guard it, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack them in the rear, do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So these verses actually look back now at the aftermath of the battle that we just saw in the first 15 verses. The five kings fled for their lives, hid themselves in a cave. Bad move. But this hiding place was clearly found out. Joshua ordered large stones to be placed and guards as well because they had to finish doing what they were doing before they'd come back. Upon the return to the caves where the five kings had hid themselves, the men were brought out and executed. But first Joshua told his field commanders to put their feet on the king's neck, which was a symbol of defeat of their enemy. And this would have been a great encouragement really for the soldiers that God has the power to do all of this to their enemies. And Joshua, verse 25, uh, encourages his men, saying, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So the kings were put to death and hanged on five trees, and then their bodies placed back in the cave, which became really their tomb. Joshua also captured Makedah on that day, destroying everything and everyone, as had happened to Jericho and Ai. Verses 28 through 43 describe what Joshua and his army did next, going from one city to the next, uh, obeying God's command to destroy everything. And I, and I bring it up again because it sounds so cruel and so harsh. God had patiently, patiently, patiently waited for the Canaanites to respond to the light around them, and they were confirmed in their defiance and their rebellion and their wickedness and their vile 
sexual perversion. They're throwing their healthy babies into fires to their gods. It was, it's over. Judgment comes. And it will be over one day on this planet as well. Not all of the towns of the land were taken during this military campaign. The fact that Joshua did not take Jerusalem at this time would prove to be a great hardship to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the future. So we have all the uh, list of cities that fell to Joshua in verses 28 through 42 uh, spelled out in the rest of the chapter. The record given to us is brief but decisive, showing success in this huge southern campaign. Verse 42 says, And all these kings and all their, and their land did Joshua take at one time, because Jehovah, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So now... As they faced unfinished work, they headed north with great confidence. Joshua and his armies returned to Gilgal to prepare for their next mission. What a tremendous spiritual leader this military commander Joshua really was. He was an example to the people. He kept his promises. He kept his word to the Gibeonites. He believed God, what he said. He believed God's promises. He believed in the power of God to answer prayer. With Joshua as the leader, they were now ready to enter the final campaign of their military conquest. As the rest of this chapter concludes with specifics of the conquest, we read that the Lord gave these cities and their kings into Israel's hands. He chose to use, this, use the army of Israel, as I said, as the judgment for the inhabitants of Canaan. So Joshua and the army worked very hard in battle, and God brought about the victory. God is the one who makes possible spiritual victories in the lives of his own children as well. We, are, we still are to be engaged in doing our part, which is daily dying to our own sinful desires, choosing to obey his word as we study it, and grateful that we are not left to hear, here to do life on our own. The next chapter brings us to the northern campaign. No, ti no time for rest here and recovery for these men. Jabin, the king of Jazer, the key town uh, north closer to the Sea of Galilee, had heard about all of Joshua's victories. And so he quickly rallied all the neighboring kings and towns to join him in a common war against Israel. So the armies unite to fight. We read that a large group of warriors came out. We read that they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore. So very large amount of warriors with very many horses and chariots things that Israel did not have. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Clearly, the armies of the north were so alarmed by all that had happened to the south of them. Jabin, the king, uh, the king Hazar, organized multiple armies in an attempt to stop Israel. He sent out messengers to the north, south, east, and west, calling multiple kings to join him to crush Israel. These kings, they certainly didn't like each other on a normal basis, but now that had, they had a mutual enemy, they joined together in an alliance. Hazar was a very large city comprised of at least 200 acres with at least 40,000 residents. And there was a, a large highway, which was a main trade route from Egypt to Syria near that area. So the main location for this event is near the upper and lower Sea of Galilee area. There is so much detail here about these events and this formidable foe of Israel. And that's all mentioned to just prove that this was an impossible task for the nation of Israel to deal with. They didn't have an oversized army. They didn't have 
a great deal of horses. They had no chariots. The details that are given to us here are to make it clear that without the Lord, this was an impossible way for Israel to have victory. Joshua was not going to wait for the battle to come to him. He had already begun to move his army northward along the Jordan Valley, not far from the Sea of Galilee. It suggested that the armies against Israel were around 300,000 infantry soldiers, 10,000 cavalry troops, and 20,000 chariots. And so, verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time... I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses, burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came up and suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them. And they pursued them as far as, as great Sidon and they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So in verses 6 and 7, what we have here lined up right next to each other is a great picture of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Because God is sovereign does not mean that human responsibility is irrelevant. God is sovereign. There was a great confidence that they could have because God is in control. And that really set them free to go about the task he gave them to do without fear. And the truth that God is sovereign over the events of your life and my life ought to bring us a great sense of peace and calm, even in the midst of chaos. God has got every situation under his divine control. And knowing this should really bring encouragement to us so that we would turn from our sins of worry and fear and trust the creator of the universe who is still on his throne, ruling over everything, every detail of your life. The attack on Jabin was located in the upper Galilee, about 4,000 feet above sea level. So it was not a very conducive place to maneuver horses and chariots. Joshua's blitz stopped any tactical advantage that the enemy may have had because of their horses and chariots. Now, why did God tell them to uh, make the horses lame and burn the chariots? You'd think the chariots would have come in handy for the rest of the war campaign. Well, one person I read said, well, the Canaanites used horses in their pagan worship. But I think that the obvious reason is that the Lord did not want Israel to trust in these mighty animals, which were weapons of war in that time, like tanks of today or fighter pilots planes. So Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. How easy, how easy it would have been for Israel to just go, hey, we got this now. Look at all the horses. I love animals. I don't want them hurt either. But this is what was told to do. In verses 10 through 14, we read of the second phase of the conflict of the northern part of Canaan. Joshua returned then to capture all the cities of these defeated kings. Hazar was singled out as the largest city dominated by, as I said, many ancient highways. So it was a trade route, and it's what made that area so wealthy. So this defeat was huge. We read in verse 15, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. So Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Such obedience to so many details. Joshua was obedient to God's word. He left nothing undone that God told Moses to tell Joshua to do. 
I wonder if that could be said of your life and mine. As we study the word of God, are we diligent to do everything that we hear, that we are exposed to in God's word? Do we apply his word? Do we obey it? I mean, James tells us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. If so, like Joshua, we will experience victory in our lives as we honor the Lord with our obedience. And you just think of simple, I can think of one tiny passage. Here's something God commands us to do. Rejoice always, pray continually, and in everything give thanks. Okay, that's his will. (laughs) That's what he expects us to be doing today. That's just one passage. Are we going to obey? Well, the summary of the war campaign is really the rest of the chapter as well as chapter 12. And it gives a summary of all the conquest of Canaan. And verse 18, we read that the war went on for a very long time. I read seven years. Think about those two and a half tribes and their wives and kids and everybody waiting back at the other side of the Jordan, you know, the two and a half tribes. But they had promised they'd help in the war effort and they stayed till it was done. The day of grace had ended for the Canaanite people. They had sinned against the light of God's revelation through nature and in their conscience. Not very different, really, from our world today. These people in Canaan were confirmed in their unbelief and their rejection of God, and they remained in that stubborn unbelief until God finally brought judgment. The extent of the war included all cities encountered being destroyed, and the only peace treaty, as we know, was with the Gibeonites. Joshua defeated the Anakim. Those were the very large people of the land. That was what caused the original spies to give such a bad report and put fear in the heart of everybody, so they refused to go conquer the land at that point. Verse 23 says, So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. In the Hebrew way of thinking, when they say a part, it represents the whole. I was always confused with the resurrection of Jesus, why it's three days when, you know, that doesn't seem three days to me. But it was a part of Friday he was in the grave. It was a part of, it was all of Saturday. It was a part of Sunday. So a part of the whole. And that's how the Hebrew culture looked at things. So Joshua took key centers in, in all of the land, which is why it said Joshua took the whole land. But we know there was still much to be conquered yet. In our study today, we have been reminded of the importance of keeping a promise, as Joshua did to the Gibeonites, even when it's hard to do. We're reminded as well that God uses our mistakes, our sins, our blunders to still accomplish his purpose. Romans 8.28 is still true. And we've seen the power of prayer as God answers in a most phenomenal way. We've seen that God is sovereign on his throne. He is over all the events of the earth and the events of individual people, but also the fact that God expects his own to be responsible to do what he has commanded for us to do, the work he wants us to do in obedience to his commands. We're reminded that God is good, but he is just and holy. There is a payday someday for all who reject him. Because God is holy, he cannot sweep sin under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. He's not a big Santa in the sky. He is holy and he is just. He is kind and he is gracious to those who trust him. That's why he made a provision for us to be in a relationship with him 
through the death of Jesus Christ, paying our debt of sin as he bore all of God's wrath. For every time we lose our temper, have a wicked thought, are self-centered, that's why Jesus died, to take the wrath we deserved as he hung on the cross. Well, there comes a point, as we've seen here, that God will take action and deal with justice. And as I said, judgment is coming to this planet when it will reach its peak that God will tolerate no more. Uh, And it doesn't seem like it's that far away, does it? When people refuse to respond to the light about who God is just by observing creation, and when they refuse to listen to their conscience and just stuff it away, Uh, it brings them to a point of rejection. And God is going to deal with our country, our world, one day. He gives plenty of opportunities, though, for individuals to repent, to turn from their self-centered ways, and to respond to all the evidence that proves that he is all-powerful, almighty, and good, and kind. The period of grace will come to an end. And as I mentioned earlier, One day, Revelation makes it very clear in the book of Daniel, God will pour out his wrath on mankind in the great tribulation. And that will usher in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. But just as he dealt with Canaan, so he will deal with everyone in this planet. So the key is to be ready. And that is by making peace with God yourself through a relationship with Jesus Christ, surrendering your life to him, being your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the book of Joshua. And there's been so many truths that we've seen thus far in the book. And I know as we get into, well, we're almost done with all of the war campaign. It's the hardest part to deal with in a study. But I pray that we would glean truth from it. I pray, Lord, that we would be women who are prayer warriors. That we would believe in the power of prayer that is so clearly presented to us in Scripture. I pray that we would be women who keep our word, keep our promises. And I thank you, God, that you have made a way to be in a right relationship with you. I do pray that you will work in our hearts, that we would be obedient like Joshua and be serious in our obedience and trust your promises and not doubt you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the same God ordering Joshua to do this as the same God telling us to repent and turn from our sins so that you will give us the gift of eternal life. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.